Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season, I am covering cases from Edinburgh, Scotland, one of the most haunted cities in the world. And tonight, I have a haunted theater for you the Edinburgh Playhouse. One of the younger buildings uh, that I'm going to be talking about this season, it's not even 100 years old yet. But she's haunted. Before I get into that, I have exciting news. My dad had his first paranormal experience, which is big news because my mom and I have had several. So this is huge in the Lambert Hack household. But my parents live in the suburbs of Chicago, the house I grew up in. It's a newer house, but we were not the first family to live there. I don't really know the like, it's very suburban area. Maybe we're the third family. I'm not sure. But it's what you think of when you think suburbs. So the last place you really think of when you think of ghosts, usually it's old buildings, like hundreds of years old buildings and stuff. But I never felt anything there growing up. I mean, I would walk downstairs late at night to the kitchen to grab like water half awake and thirsty and it's like when it's dead and quiet and dark of course you get a little eerie especially when you're half awake but I never really felt anything and our family dog Jersey would be passed out on the couch or upstairs he was a 120 pound black lab golden retriever and he never really reacted to anything in the house either so I don't know I never felt anything However, I guess while my dad was in the shower, the bathroom sink was turned on, twisted on. He was the only person home that time, and neither of the dogs, neither of the dogs that live there right now did it. Sure, he may have left the faucet running before he got into the shower, but I doubt that. So now he joins my mom and I with having at least one experience, ghost-related, I still have to get my brother to have some kind of experience. I'm hoping, because he works at a really old zoo, that he'll see something or feel something at the zoo. But nothing quite yet with him. We'll get there. But yeah, the faucet turning on by itself is odd. Unexplainable. He's never left it on before so I doubt he left it on and the dogs couldn't have jumped up and twisted it on because you have to twist it forward to get it on I don't know it's just a little weird but I'm gonna consider it a paranormal experience because it's unexplained and I'm very happy for him especially because it's not like a, a creepy experience it's just like odd but let's get into August 1534, when King James V, wearing a scarlet robe, summoned a number of people accused of a variety of crimes, but all relating to heresy. 
So going against the church. And he has summoned them uh, like to be murdered, public execution, state execution, whatever it is. But some of those people that he was summoning took refuge in England until their trial. And while they were gone, the king basically banished them, taking over their land and keeping all their money and possessions left behind, which was very common back then. So King James V, these people are going against the church, heresy, right? Uh, He wants them all dead. But the people who already left, he banished them. They can't come back. A couple of people, James Hamilton and his sister Catherine, did not leave the country right away. They pleaded with the king, but he was not going to interfere with the Catholic Church and their laws. The king basically told James if he wanted to survive, he basically had to leave the country, which he did. So he escaped. His sister Catherine, on the other hand, was able to defend herself and convince the king to save her. But all she had to do to be saved was plead allegiance to the Catholic Church, which she reluctantly obliged. I mean, pleading allegiance to a church sounds very culty to me, but I do love the idea of having to surrender to the church because if you do that, there's no way they can really keep track of that. If you keep it on the down low, of course. You can say, yes, I plead allegiance to the Pope. That's fine. And then like secretly do your little Protestant studies or whatever. I mean, the papacy was crazy back then. They're crazy now, but a whole different kind of crazy. Someone was put to death because he translated the Bible to English. That's how crazy Catholic Church was back then. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I am not a religious person. I am so out of that world so much so i literally thought the current pope died in december and then i finally looked it up because i didn't really hear about a new pope (laughs) being elected or whatever and realized that the last pope was the one that died not the current pope i think he like the one before like unprecedentedly quit his job or something like that i really don't know but the, um, the docuseries Pope, the most powerful man in history, was really fascinating if you're looking for a fun docuseries to watch, history-related. It's like six episodes, so it's not like crazy long, but they take you all the way back to the beginning, which I found interesting. Very dramatic, chaotic, there's murders going on. I love it, but uh, that's the most you'll get me interested in Catholicism and religion in general. But anyway, so King James V, remember, he summoned all these people. They're all going to die, or at least have a trial to see if they're going to die. He, again, wasn't going to go against the Catholic Church in 1534. So when Norman Gourlay and David Stratton were brought to trial, they were not as lucky as the siblings. Norman was a secular priest, who had studied in Germany for a time. When he returned to Scotland, he was preaching that the Pope was the Antichrist and had no jurisdiction in Scotland. And I'm not going to say that he was wrong, and he had every right to be upset since the papacy was essentially murdering people that didn't agree with them. But to openly preach about it 
is risky, right? You know that the Catholic Church is doing this. You're basically asking for a death sentence. But someone had to do it, right? Otherwise, you don't get change. David, on the other hand, was from a well-known family in Scotland. Catholics believed purgatory is a place or state of suffering inhabited by the souls of sinners. But David was like, purgatory isn't another place, but are just the troubles of the world. So everyone's basically suffering. Everyone's in purgatory because of all the troubles that are happening in the world. David also refused to pay his tithe, tithe, which is a payment to a church that's a tenth of your income, which is outrageous. A tenth of your income goes directly to the church or you're sentenced to heresy. Like, come on. All these people that don't believe in Catholicism have to pay a tenth of their income. And they weren't making a lot of money back then. I can tell you that. I'd be pissed if a tenth of my income came out for a church. I mean, that is how the church made so much money. But on August 27th, 1534, both Norman and David were hanged in the Rood of Greenside. And once dead, their bodies were buried. And the Rood of Greenside was an area near Holyrood Abbey at the time. Just It was just empty land. That is the space where the Edinburgh Playhouse stands today. So obviously there's a long history of that land. And so we're going to get more into what that land was before what it is today. But it started obviously as empty land, but started with death and public hangings. They also burned people on that land for having different religious beliefs and speaking out about it as well. So hangings and burnings, but yeah, not a great start to the area. But. We're going to take it a little further back in time, August 13th, 1456, when King James II granted the Valley of Greenside to be used as a recreation ground. Remember, at this time, Edinburgh was surrounded by the Floden Wall, and everything outside the wall was grassland, valleys, forests, etc., the king allowed citizens to go beyond the walls and to use this empty space for plays, tournaments, festivals, whatever you could think of. One of the first plays performed in the outdoor theater in Greenside was Sir David Lindsay's play, A Satire of Three Estates. The show was an attack on the three estates represented in Scotland's parliament the Leroy, Lords, and Borough. Borough meaning the town or boroughs. Originally performed outside in Fife, but then headed to Edinburgh for their second run. The show was performed in the presence of the Queen Regent, Mary of Guise. Guys. People who made their way outside town to see the show would wait a very long time to see the show. Some would wait nine hours to see this play. And if I'm waiting nine hours, it better be kick ass. However, there were like pre-shows like jugglers and singers and you could eat. 
So maybe I would wait the nine hours if there was other stuff going on. But what a full day's worth of entertainment. I mean, opera used to be super long too. Like, that's why operas are fucking three, four acts. Because in between each act, you would, like, drink, eat. There'd be full-on dip. Like, you would go to the opera in between, like, act one and two. Or between one, two, and three, four. You would have a full dinner. And then during the show, it was more like a football game. Like, you can cheer for these singers and performers. And if you liked a song so much, you could, like, ask for an encore. And they would pause the entire show, and the singer would just sing the aria again. Opera needs to go back to those kinds of times. Sounds fun. Anyway. Greenside. This place where people were hanged. This place where plays are being seen in outdoor theaters. It eventually became a space for jousting. You know, when horses ran at each other with knights on top holding the long spears, the lances. Jousting was very common. Jousting began in France. uh, Stemmed from the word, a word in Latin. But... It basically started as a military practice during the medieval era. People got excited to watch these scrimmages, thus turning the military practice to a sport. Specifically because kings wanted to take up jousting to showcase their own courage and skills. So basically, these kings who... I don't know. I don't want to say they... I don't think many of them were really athletic or really fought in any kind of war so they see all these men doing all the dirty work and then i'm sure people around town were like well the king can't do that or some shit like that and so the king being egotistical was like you know what i'm gonna show my own courage and strength and skills and i'm gonna participate in these scrimmages But with the introduction of firearms in war, swords and lances were like not really a thing anymore. So the relevance of jousting to warfare became obsolete. So it became more of a sport than for war. There's a great example in House of Dragons. Uh, Jousting may start with a lance, but if someone was unhorsed, They may use closer-ranged weapons. When it first became a sport, it was ruthless. There wasn't a chivalry code, so everyone would go all out to incapacitate their contender. And at first, a knight would compete in groups with the objective of gaining the other group's horses, arms, ransoms, etc. I'd say more like Shrek, Like that time, like, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation moment where Shrek is fighting a group of knights. I think it started more like that, where it's like group on group, if Shrek had a group of ogres. But it wasn't until the late medieval period when chivalry played a part. No longer could a knight exploit an opponent's disadvantage. So knights would be very conscious about being in a position of advantage. Like, if a knight had a 
bum right knee, you better be staying away from the legs. If he's missing a left eye, you can't hide out of his vision. So like the opposite of Mighty Python, the Holy Grail, when the knight cuts off the other knight's four limbs, it's just a flesh wound. You can't do that. Not in a sporting sense, at least. The game's evolved into a three-course battle, starting with the joust, then into a uh, battle axe, and then swords and or daggers were used. And then people were so into it that it extended from a three-round sport to a five-round sport. Then it was extended to 10 or 12 rounds. Like, this would be over a number of days, but it sounds exhausting. The goal wasn't death, but it happened because you got stabbed, and it doesn't have to be a serious cut, but we're talking about the 14th and 15th century. You'd simply die from loss of blood or some random infection. It also didn't help that these battles were just an open field, and there weren't any safety measures going on. So again, just to recap, you start with this joust in an open field. There, What you see in movies, like the fencing, none of that was there. It's just an open field. They're jousting. You got off your, One would be on horse. The other one would hop off. They'd fight with battle axes or whatever else. And then they'd fight with swords or daggers just to incapacitate the person. Eventually, you had chivalry rules, so you couldn't take out people's legs or... You know, if someone was down, you had to stop. That eventually changed with the introduction of a cloth barrier separating the two opponents riding horses with their lances. So, like in House of Dragons, like a lot of those other night shows, uh, there was some kind of fencing between the two horses as a safety precaution. The cloth fence moved to a wooden fence, but the idea was to keep the horse on track and have more optimal angle for breaking the lance. Because before, there were collisions with horses, or the horse would make a sudden move or turn, causing the lance to go into a knight's thigh. This helped with safety, which ultimately led to a better show for everyone else. Because you want to see the spectacle of wood flying everywhere and shields getting hit with lances and people falling off their horse if you don't have that spectacle and uh lances just going to someone's thigh and blood spewing everywhere it's not really what people really came there to see also for safety measures knights ended up wearing heavier plated armor for combat and the and the armor could weigh easy 110 pounds on jousting whereas the armor for sword fighting was around 55 pounds still far too much clothing like these men had to be ripped not only are you carrying around 55 pounds but those swords weren't light either and you had to swing your body around like going to the gym is tiring enough let alone wearing all that weight and trying to not get stabbed. No, thank you. Also, those poor horses. I know horses are insanely strong, but to have like 300 pounds in the back, on your back and expected to sprint, no. 
Though I do, I do love going to the horse races. I'm very excited because I'm going to the Kentucky Derby this year. And I'm thrilled. But the armor continued to be modified, as was the sport. Jousting now had the goal of hitting the shield. So the shields were attached to the armor with a spring mechanism that when it was hit, it would fly off. Again, for the spectacle. Before, you know, each knight would hold the shield and the shield wouldn't fly off because their full arm is, you know, tucked in between straps behind the shield. But it wasn't great for that knight's arm. You know, I'm sure there were plenty of broken arms because of that. You have a full-ass lance battering your arm. So when they decide to, like, modify the armor and make it heavier and protect the body more, they just attached the shield to the armor instead of the guy having to hold it. And even though jousting originated in France, the UK and and Germany continued the tradition. France ended up banning the sport in the 1500s because of the death of King Henry II. He was an avid hunter and loved jousting. So to celebrate his daughter's marriage, he chose to joust in his mistress's colors, no doubt. Which, I don't know how I feel about that. I, It's such a weird thing to publicly do that, to have everyone know that you're sleeping with someone else. But I guess if you're the king, you can do whatever the fuck you want to do. However, when the king was jousting and the lance struck the king's shield, the wood splintered off. And as it was designed to do, that is exactly what was supposed to happen. But a fragment from the lance flew into King Henry II's eye. A piece of wood flew into his eye. Obviously, he was rushed to a doctor, but there wasn't much the surgeons could do. Obviously, they removed the splinter, but the injury caused sepsis, uh, blood poisoning, and he died on July 10th, 1559. His death really was the like catalyst to the decline in jousting. And France abolished the sport altogether because their king died. But the UK and Germany were still all about jousting. Again, jousting became more of a show at this point and not military training. And in the 1600s, the joust, which was the main attraction, was replaced with carousels, which were horse ballets. Jousting continued, but instead of two knights with lances, it was one knight trying to lance a ring. The ring tournaments were introduced to North America where jousting continued to be Maryland's state sport. I want to know how many of you knew that, and that's a fun trivia fact for long car rides. Maryland's state sport today is jousting. And if you want to see jousting in person, you can go to Medieval Times to get the feel of watching these tournaments. If you've never been, it's kind of entertaining 
take the kids. There's like 10 locations around the U.S. I've been to the one in Chicago a few times, but I think there's one in New Jersey, not far outside of New York City. They're all over the place. Might be a fun little outing. Long story short, these tournaments took place in a field near Holyrood and where the Edinburgh Playhouse stands today. So in Greenside. I tell you all of that because this place is haunted and we don't know why it's haunted and we don't know really know who's haunting it. I'll get into that later, of course. But thus far, we've had public hangings in this space. We've had jousting deaths in this space. After the jousting ended and Edinburgh was expanding outside the Floden Wall, the area was then an insane asylum run by nuns. So the building next to the Edinburgh Playhouse today was the Lady Glenorchy's Church after it was relocated. Now, I couldn't find exactly which asylum was run in this location, but if I had to guess, the nuns from Lady Glenorchy's were the ones running this location. They were the ones running the asylum. Either way, if you've listened to this podcast, you know asylums were never good. Plenty of deaths. And from my understanding, the space then, after the same asylum was done, it became a religious tabernacle. Again, I'm assuming for the people running Lady Glenorchy's church. But again, there's no there's no information about any of this. The Edinburgh Playhouse, so we finally are up to speed on the Edinburgh Playhouse, opened in 1929, originally as a super cinema with thousands of seats and a stage. It was based off the New York City Roxy Theater, which was the largest movie theater ever built. Roxy had approximately 5,900 seats for one movie theater. Not your mall's movie theater where there's like 18 theaters. I'm talking about one screen, almost 6,000 seats. Whereas Edinburgh Playhouse has approximately 3,000 seats, a little more than 3,000 seats. Still huge for a movie theater. And it's good to remember that films weren't mainstream at this point or until the 1900s. A feature film meaning 60 Minutes, wasn't a thing until 1906. Synchronized sound recording became popular by the end of the 1920s. Non-black and white films weren't mainstream until the 30s. 1926 saw the first feature-length animated film called The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. The classic Nosferatu came out in 1922. By the 1920s, the United States was producing 800 feature films annually. MGM was created in 1924. So basically, the 20s were a huge time for film development, which is why we saw these huge movie theaters. And there weren't very many cinemas at the time, and everyone wanted to go. So they needed enough space for these people to see these movies. Again, it's not like today where there's 15 movies out 
at one time, you know, there were like one or two movies out. So everyone would gather for this one movie in this giant movie theater. Unfortunately, Edinburgh Playhouse closed in the 70s after the introduction of TV and movies being so popular that there were more cinemas popping up. Edinburgh Playhouse just had too many seats to fill and to function as a movie theater. So the town chose to tear it down. However, the public got together 15,000 signatures to petition the teardown, and the Edinburgh Playhouse was listed as a Category B historic building, saving the theater. So it was decided to use the space for concerts instead, which lasted about three to four years before it was used as a theater for plays and musicals. Today, Edinburgh Playhouse functions as a space for the live theater, like touring groups, usually after after their run on the West End in uh, London. They usually tour, and Edinburgh is a big stop for them. And they're actually going to be premiering a new musical today called Burns, about Robert Burns's life. Now, this is just a fun fact because I had no idea, but the original idea of this musical, Burns, was from David Just, who is the ex-husband of Liza Minnelli, and David Just came up with this idea with Michael Jackson. I guess they were very close. And so this musical idea was a long time coming. Eventually, Michael Jackson died and David Just left the um, left the idea with somebody else. But the musical that's premiering today in Edinburgh at Edinburgh Playhouse was uh, written by Tish Tyndall. So I hope, I hope it does well. Bless Tish for getting up, getting this musical up and on its feet. It's so much more difficult than people know to get a musical up and running, especially at a major theater. So break a leg, everyone performing tonight. But with that, let's take a quick break before we meet Edinburgh Playhouse's resident ghost. going to talk about the famous Albert, Edinburgh Playhouse's resident ghost. Like I mentioned before, no one knows who Albert is and why he haunts the theater. He could be a colonel from the King's Army back in the 14th century. There's a story that a colonel back then tried to leave Edinburgh to visit his lover, who lived outside the walls of the city, which I guess was a no-no since he was part of the king's army or something like that. But because of that, he was hanged for his crime in that space, in that empty field where they had jousting tournaments, where those other people were hanged for heresy. 
Or Albert could be one of the insane asylum victims, or maybe a monk who died and was buried in the church at the time. We don't really know. However, the best guess, or what most people have decided is true, is that Albert was the first stagehand for the theater. I don't know if it was common, but I have read a few stories where stagehands slept in the theater and used it as a home. Maybe because they didn't make a ton of money as a stagehand, so they saved money by sleeping at work. I'm not quite sure. If you watch the movie Pearl, the love interest who, gorgeous man, he slept at that theater. I don't really know, but it is said that Albert fell asleep one winter's night in Edinburgh Playhouse and passed away in his sleep. Maybe from frostbite or hypothermia because it was winter. Maybe for some other medical reason. Nobody really knows for sure. But we get the first encounter of Albert in the 1950s when the police were called for a break-in. Since the 1950s, this place has been open for around 20 years already as a super cinema. So it's a movie theater at this point. The police arrived. They found the stage door open in the back. So they carefully made their way through the theater, checking all the floors, all the backstage areas, the dressing rooms, etc. However, they didn't find anyone. On their way out, they ran into a man. He told the cops that he was the stagehand and that he would lock up the back the back door that they came in after they had left. The following day, the officer, one of the officers, called the theater to make sure there weren't any other incidents going on at the theater. And the young man who answered the phone was confused because he didn't know that the police were called the night before. The officer told him that he met the stagehand, Albert. And the young man told the officer that no one was working that last night, and that a man named Albert used to be the stagehand, but died years ago. So interesting, confusing. Did the police run into a man that broke in? And he played it off like he worked there? Or did they run into a ghost? Who called the break-in? Was Albert just looking for company? Just more questions than answers, of course. Usually how it goes for a ghost. Later, a stage doorkeeper, Keith Donald, was working one night and he felt strange things going on and believes the place is haunted. And there was one incident where he was checking the theater at the end of the night, and he always did so with his dog, Meg. I love that name for a dog, Meg. He had checked the north side of the building and was crossing the stage to check the south end when he noticed Meg wasn't walking beside him any longer. Keith stopped, turned to look for her, and his dog was sitting in the middle of the stage just staring. He tried to encourage Meg to follow him, but she wasn't having it. 
He finally decided to put her leash on, but she began to moan and whine. She would look at Keith, then look up the south stairs, then look back at Keith, then back at the stairs and back and forth. And she wouldn't budge. And that mix of her looking up the stairs and then back at Keith did not sit well with Keith. So he chose not to check the south end at that point. Which, good. Always follow your gut. If something feels off, it probably is. Another night, Keith was going around checking the theater, as he did every night. And at this time, they kept the lights on in the foyer at night. And for those who don't know, uh, the stage area always gets a light in the middle of the stage. Because if you didn't put a light there it'd be pitch black and you potentially could fall off the stage and severely injure yourself. So I always put a light in the middle on, on stage at night called a ghost light. However, in the foyer, Edinburgh Playhouse kept the lights on. There are two sets of doors that lead from the foyer into the auditorium of Edinburgh Playhouse. And Edinburgh Playhouse is kind of interesting because... If you walk from the foyer straight into the auditorium, you walk onto the dress circle. So the middle level of seating. To get to the orchestra seating, you have to walk downstairs to get the orchestra seating. And if you want to get to the balcony, you have to walk upstairs. But you walk onto the dress circle from the foyer. It's a little different than a lot of other theaters. Anyway... There are two sets of doors that lead from the foyer into the auditorium. Between the two sets of doors, there's a light. But that night, the light was dark. So as Keith walked around, he noticed that the light wasn't as bright as all the other lights. So he walked towards the light to make sure he didn't have to replace the bulb or to see if there was an electrical issue or something going on. However, as he walked towards the light, it suddenly lit up again. Which immediately got Keith to have chills. He quickly realized that there wasn't anything wrong with the bulb, but someone was standing in front of the bulb. And the darkness that had been standing in front of the light had moved into the auditorium. Slowly, of course, because the closer Keith got to the darkness, the farther it would move away. He walked into the auditorium following this dark entity and faced the stage. He noticed that the stage right box was lit normally, but the stage left box was shrouded in darkness. And he immediately felt unwanted. Another encounter comes from maintenance manager Billy Kapner. He was called to fix a leak on the ninth floor, which acts as an attic that runs above the auditorium. So no one really goes up there except maintenance workers. So when Billy opened the door to the ninth floor, the lights wouldn't turn on and the emergency lights weren't working either. He didn't seem to find that too weird because it's not a well-traveled space. So the lights may have been burnt out for a while without anyone noticing. But regardless, 
he pulls a flashlight out and eventually finds the leak that he was looking for. He knelt down and began to fix the leak, but as he did, he felt as if someone was leaning over him, watching him work. He didn't see anyone, but Billy quickly got his leak fixed and left. When he got back to the office, he asked his coworker who called the leak in, and they never found out who reported it. Which is odd, because again, it's in the attic. So there aren't really many people going up there. They have no idea who called the leak in, but it's it sounds very reminiscent of, you know, someone calling the police for a break-in and not knowing who called the police because no one was working that night and so on and so forth. But plenty of people have felt a presence in the room with them while walking through the theater. Lights turn on and off by themselves. Movies would turn on by themselves. A tape recorder was thrown across the stage by itself, like six feet. And there have been seances and paranormal investigations in this theater. One of the members investigating got lost in the theater while they were getting ready to leave. The rest of the team had headed out. So this one man, after using the restroom, asked an older man who was hanging around backstage where the exit was. And when he got outside, he told his team members that this older gentleman helped him out. And they reminded him that they were the only people in the building that night. So... This lost investigator talked to what people think is Albert, who's there helping people when he can. There was a woman named Penny who was working at the theater in 1997 when they were having a a government event. I don't really know what kind of event, but many government officials were going to be at this theater. And they have visited in the past. Even Queen Liz II has been in Edinburgh and Playhouse. So to prepare for this event, or to prepare to have, you know, very important people in a space, the police had to sweep the theater for safety precautions. So they brought dogs to check for bombs. So while they're sweeping the theater with these uh, bomb-sniffing dogs, over the radio... Penny heard that the police couldn't clear the building. And when asked why, they said that the dogs refused to wander floor six. Because the police dogs wouldn't even walk onto floor six, army dogs had to come in to clear the floor because the police dogs refused. Wild. Again, not the first time a dog refused to walk in an area. Guests visiting have had technology problems which is great for the theater because you know you can't film plays musicals etc so it's great for theater when you have technology problems but a woman who was touring and wanted to tape record her visit she wasn't seeing a show or anything she was just touring the building uh she was trying to tape her visit however her recorder stopped working halfway through but worked fine once she left the theater She tried doing this tour again, and instead she brought a pen and paper. However, when she reached floor six, the ink and the pen she used exploded. 
coincidence, maybe, two times. It's odd, can't be explained, paranormal, but... Albert is also reported to be seen working on radiators. Maybe to keep everyone warm since he died one winter night? No one's for sure, but... There, there will be people who have seen shadows standing in front of radiators a lot. And with the thought of Albert making these reports of a leaky pipe or a break-in or whatever, maybe he is just looking out for the theater and wants it to operate correctly. But we'll never know. We don't know who Albert is. Albert still haunts today. You can go see a show. Go see Burns if you're in Edinburgh tonight or tomorrow. But keep an eye out for Albert. I'm sure he watches all the shows too, whether he watches it backstage or in one of the seats in the theater. But I'm sure there are probably other ghosts wandering about if Albert's, you know, Albert's looking out for the place. But maybe the ghosts, there are other ghosts playing with the lights. Maybe there are other ghosts causing the issues in the theater and Albert has to you know put them in place but if you visit let me know and thank you all for listening I truly appreciate the support and hope you're enjoying these Edinburgh stories check out the socials for photos related to each episode guest info upcoming news if you have a paranormal experience you'd like me to read on the podcast please email me at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from your framed photos of your family having their eyes X'd out to an old man staring you down from across the street, even though you know only women live there. Let me know, and I will see you all back here next Friday for another Edinburgh case, because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is from Tyre. Follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar. And listen to his music on any streaming service, Apple Music, Spotify, etc. The artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on Instagram at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Wikipedia, ATG, EDI, The Theatre Bear, Historic Environment, Scotland, Edinburgh News, and YouTube videos from Clan Brunford. <laughs>